Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for coming. Um, as you can probably notice by the fact there's only two of us on stage, um, I've got to send apologies from Ari. Uh, well, not unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately at all. It's wonderful news. Uh, his wife has just gone into labour. Um, he texted me a couple of hours before to say, sorry, he can't be here, but um, I can't think of a better reason or excuse not to be here. Yeah. Um, so on that note, I'm going to have to move on to a slightly more uh, morbid tone to introduce this whole discussion, which is obviously a very serious one. Um, I'm Oliver Lockland. I'm a senior reporter for The Guardian here in New York, and it's my pleasure to welcome Carol Anderson, one of the country's foremost experts on civil rights and voter suppression. Carol is a... <laughs> yeah. Carol is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. She is the author of the bestseller, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and the forthcoming One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. The election of Donald Trump in 2016 was, of course, a seismic moment in the history of American democracy. Not only had the US elected a commander-in-chief who launched his campaign by branding Mexicans rapists, pledging to ban Muslims from entering the country, and threatening to send his Democratic opponent to prison. In victory, he also questioned the, val the validity of the democratic process itself. Without evidence, or any remote basis in fact, the president-elect, who had lost the popular vote, argued that two to three million people in this country had voted illegally. In fact, the opposite was true. The 2016 election was the first held after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That, rebut le that robust legislation that actively prevented discrimination at the ballot box and one of the defining achievements of the civil rights era. Almost 900 polling places in counties that would have been covered by the VRA's pre-clearance requirements simply disappeared in 2016. An MIT study estimated around 16 million people, or 12% of all voters, experienced some sort of voting problem in 2016. According to the same study, over one million votes were lost because the eligible voters did not have the right ID or simply queued for too long. In Wisconsin, a state won by Trump by just 27,000 votes and which had enacted one of the country's harshest voter ID laws, turnout rates among African Americans plummeted from 78% in 2012 to less than 50% in 2016. In Florida, another swing state, access to the ballot has been denied to roughly 1.7 million people due to felony convictions. Trump won that state by just over 100,000 votes. In North Carolina, local Republican officials boasted in a press release that, quote, African-American early voting is down 8.5% from this time in 2012. The list goes on, as I'm sure we'll hear. These examples are shocking enough and perhaps remind us of an era of segregation where in certain parts of America, uh, people were excluded from the franchise simply because of the color of their skin. An era, an era described by Carroll in One Person No Vote as, quote, when denying the vote to millions of American citizens was so deeply rooted in the fabric of the nation, twisted into the mechanics of government, and embedded in the political strategy and thinking of powerful government officials, this clear affront to democracy was not going to change on its own. So before we look at 2016, I wanted to ask Carol to start off with, if she remembers that moment back in June 2013 when the Shelby County versus Holder decision came down, how it felt, mm. and when we talk about gutting the vote, Voting Rights Act, what do we mean and what its consequences were? Yeah. 
Thank you, Oliver. Yes, I don't quite remember where I am because it's one of those kinds of things that was so horrific that I'm trying to block it out. Um, but I do remember my anger. I remember my anger as I read through John Roberts' opinion because it was so devoid of reality. Um, for instance, part of the opinion dealt with that the Voting Rights Act, which came into being in 1965 uh, because we were looking at massive voter suppression in the South, um, where there were counties that had, that would be majority African Americans and have maybe zero African Americans registered to vote. Um, and so the Voting Rights Act was a preemptive strike on that because previous legislation had been going in after the fact and it just wasn't working. So you had to have pre-clearance. Um, and section four of the Voting Rights Act identified the standards where a jurisdiction would then come under the Department of Justice's pre-clearance um, advisory so that they had to get any, any uh, movement that they made, change that they made in their laws for voting would have to come through the Department of Justice. The Supreme Court gutted Section 4, which therefore meant then Section 5, in terms of the way preclearance worked, couldn't operate. The rationale for that was, one, uh, Justice Roberts said that basically we're in a post-racial society and that racism wasn't what it used to be. Um, and that the things of the Jim Crow era no longer existed. That was one. Two, he said that it looked like the Voting Rights Act was uh, punitive, that it was a punishment targeted at the South. And the South was innocent for all intents and purposes. So therefore, this law, which was singling out a, a, an area, a region of the United States, um, that, that it was inherently unfair to do that. He said that, you, the, that the law was static, that it didn't move, it wasn't vibrant, it, it was like a dinosaur. It, it should have been extinct along with racism. Um, and so that it, 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 it just, it kept all of, most of the states that had been under the jurisdiction. He said only 17 have been bailed out of preclearance. Now I look at that going, if only 17 have been bailed out, and the way that you can get bailed out is that you do not discriminate against your citizens at the ballot box to get to the ballot box when they're in the ballot box for five years. Thou shalt not discriminate for five years. And all of a sudden you don't have to come under preclearance. The fact that we had so many jurisdictions since 1965 that were still under the Department of Justice's preclearance tells you that in fact discrimination was still right. It was uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg who said, you know, it's like you're not, it's, it's raining but you're not getting wet because you've got your umbrella up. And so you're thinking, hey, I'm not wet so mm, I can, I, I'm okay. I don't need my umbrella anymore. When actually the racism was pervasive. The Department of Justice had, uh, from 1982 to 2006, had stopped 700 
different changes to states' laws dealing with voting rights because they were racially discriminatory. And so this just really opened up the door. Um, it, 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 it let the dogs out. To what extent do you think that case and the fact that uh, 23 states since 2010 uh, enacted some sort of uh, voter suppression law was a response to the fact that this country had just elected its first African-American president? I, I think the election of Barack Obama, um, and I detailed this in White Rage, um, was one of those key moments when um, large sectors of the body politic, of the policymakers, looked up and said, oh, we're not having this. And, and, and the way that that happened, I mean, so I hear the thing, well, America has moved beyond racism because we elected Barack Obama twice. Um, I hear that a lot. But when you look at the demographics of who elected Obama, in neither 2008 nor 2012 were the majority of whites who voted voting for Obama. It was the coalition that he put together. There were a large number of whites, but in 2008, 15 million new voters came to the polls. They were incredibly diverse. Two million new African-American voters, two million new Latino voters, 600,000 Asian-American voters, and they had doubled the percentage of people, nearly doubled the percentage of people who made less than $15,000 a year. They came to the polls. Now, what we should be saying is that this is an embrace. We say we love democracy, and to bring 15 million new people to the polls who, had, who now believed that they had a stake in this nation, who now believed that they, there was a viable reason for them to be engaged. And instead what happened was that we had a series of laws that targeted precisely those people, those groups in the, that Obama coalition. Um, so you will find that the laws are targeting African Americans, they're targeting Latinos, they're targeting Asian Americans, and they're targeting the poor. Now, they have to be careful in how they do it because there's that thing of the 15th Amendment that says you can't discriminate in voting because of race. And so they have to be careful how they do it by going after characteristics um, such as poverty, um, going after characteristics such as the, the, the distance that it takes to be able to get one of those IDs, who has a certain type of ID. There are whole sorts of ways that they have been sorting through the data to figure out how to target these very groups and suppress that vote. And to take it back even further, and this is the last time we'll go too back in history, I think, um, one of the things that I found most fascinating about the first chapter in your new book was just the way in which you retraced the history of voting in this country since the Voting Rights Act was passed. And I think for outsiders like me, sometimes when you study the history of civil rights in this country, it's quite a sanitized history. You sort of think about it as one that is entirely one way, it's progression all the way, but actually what you do incredibly effectively is look at from the moment that this legislation was passed, mm -hmm. the efforts to undo it. And when you talk about the Roberts decision, 
so many of the the the, the reasons for uh, the decision there were ones that had been articulated decades and decades before. And I wonder whether you can, without repotting the entire history, just sort of talk us through that. Wh why we sanitised that 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 particular period, and and what are the sort of moments when you look back at it now that really stand out? Okay, so I think the reason one of the reasons why we sanitised that period is that. Um, the U.S. is an aspirational nation. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Um, one nation under God. You know, it's, it's got this kind of sense of oneness. It's got this, this embrace of democracy. And slavery and Jim Crow just really didn't align. But the aspiration, and in fact, you had the civil rights activists using that aspiration but what happened in the U.S. is that you had this switch that took that aspiration and then began to herald it as an achievement. So that when the signs white only, colored only went down, um, when the Voting Rights Act was passed, you had this, whew, glad that's over, look at it. This, we have handled the unfinished business of democracy without really dealing with the kind of systemic inequality and systemic racism that had in fact made so many people have to get out in the streets, made people have to face snarling dogs and, 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 and fire hoses. But that wonderful arc, we need that arc of progress. And so that wonderful arc, we, we messed up, but we got it right. And so that becomes the end. But what happened, um, the Voting Rights Act is 1965. In 1966, South Carolina sued, um, a case that went up to the Supreme Court. South Carolina sued saying that the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional because it violated states' rights, because it put federal electors at the polling stations in South Carolina to make sure that South Carolina was no longer using the literacy test. And the literacy test was one of those mechanisms that was very effective in, 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 in um, suppressing the vote prior to the Voting Rights Act. Between the literacy test and the poll tax in the mid-1940s, um, only 3% of eligible af age eligible African Americans were registered to vote in the South, three. So this is, this is the power of this thing. And in 66, South Carolina's going, that's not fair. We shouldn't have to have you know, the feds over looking over our shoulders. And the Supreme Court said, oh yeah, we need to look. We really, we really need to look. Um, then you got another push um, in a case um, in 1969 dealing with Mississippi and Virginia that both said, okay, so the Voting Rights Act might be constitutional. But um, it doesn't mean that every last maneuver that we make in terms of voting requirements or districts or whatever um, has to be approved by the Department of Justice. And what Mississippi had done was to create at-large districts. So whereas there used to be these nicely confined districts, but they knew that the black vote had been so suppressed that they never had to worry about um, a, com a county commissioner being elected, a black county commissioner being elected, or a white county commissioner being elected who was really about trying to improve the quality of life for African Americans in Mississippi. But once you had the Voting Rights Act and black uh, voter registration 
climbed up into the 60% range in Mississippi, Mississippi said, okay, let's do at-large district, at-large voting. That would then diffuse that black population into a larger white population. Again, and, and um, Virginia did one saying that um, you had to write in the candidate if you wanted to do uh, uh, somebody's name who, who wasn't on the ballot. Virginia had massive literacy because Virginia had shut down its black public schools um, in response to Brown. It had shut them down for years. So um, the Supreme Court came back and said, mm -mm, this deals with the subtle as well as the obvious mechanisms. Everything you do comes under the Voting Rights Act. We have these other cases that then come up. Um, but I'm gonna. No, no, no. <laughs> so, yeah, there's one other case again. Going back into history for uh, one last question, you talk about the way in which uh, in the 70s and 80s the act was essentially weaponized uh, by aggressive young prosecutors like a guy in Alabama called Jeff Sessions, um, mm. who at that point uh, brought a case against Albert Turner and two of his um, colleagues who were. Um, African-American civil rights leaders who uh, were trying to get out the vote. He put them under surveillance by the FBI mm -hmm. and accused them of voter fraud. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, again, when you look back at a case like that and you look at where we are now, I mean, ultimately, that case stopped Jeff Sessions, but partially stopped him from uh, achieving a federal judgeship, but now he's the attorney general. To what extent does that moment in history symbolize where we are now? It crystallizes it. It crystallizes it in really clear ways because one of the things that happened just prior to the Jeff Sessions going after what they called the Marion Three, um, Alabama had also gone after two civil rights workers, uh, Julia um, Wildman and um, Maggie Bozeman. One was the head of the SCLC in Pickens County, the other was the head of the NAACP in Pickens County. And they had been registering folks to vote and they had also been using uh, absentee ballots. The prosecutor came down hard on them. The case was shaky. The case was so fundamentally flawed that the appeals court was just, <laughs> but Julia, who was 69 years old, um, was served with a five-year sentence in prison for committing voter fraud. And Maggie Bozeman was hit with a four-year prison term. That sent shockwaves through the black community, like, oh my God, if you vote, they're gonna throw you in prison. So part of what we're seeing happening at this time is that um, an increase in black voters, an increase in black voter turnout is being defined by key members in the Republican Party and key members in the criminal justice system as being voter fraud. So voter fraud is now being linked to blackness. And so when Jeff Sessions goes after um, Albert Turner, and understand, Albert Turner was in Selma. Albert Turner was one of the lead men who was um, taking Martin Luther King's casket um, to its resting place. I mean, Albert Turner is a civil rights warrior. And and the way that you, you handle this, somebody who is that strong, someone who is that determined, because his first effort at, at understanding how absentee ballots worked, um, because his county had like 40 some, was 40 some percent African American, but had never elected a black official, ever. 
And so he figured out that it was the absentee ballots coming in from whites. And he also figured out that about 48% of African Americans in Perry County, Perry County um, could not get to the polls because the polls were only open for four hours on election day. And pe many, you know, so many people worked outside of the county, or you had those who were in nursing homes, so trying to, to make that journey. So absentee ballots, the first time they did it, a black official was elected. Right after that, that attorney, that prosecutor called Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions says, oh, I got this. And so in the 1984 election, the he called in the FBI and the FBI followed the Turners and prosecuted them all the way. Um, they were found not guilty, but I still remember Mrs. Turner's words. She said, I'll never forget as long as I'm black. That kind of sense of what that kind of being under the gun, knowing that you could be spending the rest of your life in an Alabama prison simply because you want people to vote. You want to open up this democracy. That was the fear that Jeff Sessions was raining down in Alabama. I think that's probably a good moment to move forward to 2016 because obviously Jeff Sessions is now the Attorney General. Um, there are a lot of uh, reasons people cite for Donald Trump winning this election. Um, people talk about Hillary, Hillary Clinton as a flawed candidate. They talk about fake news. Uh, where I work at The Guardian, we've been doing a lot of work on Cambridge Analytica and um, mm. data protection and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously just the fact that you know Trump tapped into a base and a, and a sort of inner racism in this country that, uh, that worked. Mm -hmm. To what extent is voter suppression one of the causes that is overlooked? Voter suppression is huge, huge in terms of Donald Trump's electoral college victory. So I think one of the things we have to get to um, is that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. But it was in these key states like Wisconsin, like Florida, where, you know, so part of what I'm tracking, for instance, is that, that, that those two states alone put Donald Trump over in terms of the Electoral College. 27,000 votes in Wisconsin, right? Oh my gosh, and so one of the things that happened in Wisconsin with the 2010 election of the Republicans, they did a whole series of voter suppression efforts. One was massive gerrymandering what they call extreme partisan gerrymandering. That case is before the Supreme Court right now. Now, it doesn't sound like gerrymandering would matter in a presidential election, <coughs> but research is really clear. In these very extreme partisan gerrymandered states, what happens are that people feel that their votes don't matter, and so they just stay home. So part of the ways that it works is that it depresses the, the voter turnout. The second thing that they did was to implement a really harsh, strict voter ID law um, requiring government-issued photo ID. Now, there are, who has that ID is racially disparate um, because it's also certain types of ID. Um, and so driver's licenses, for instance, up to about 15% of African Americans don't have a driver's license. Um, and it has to deal with the expense of cars. 
you have to pay the note, <laughs> you have to buy insurance, you have maintenance, you have gas, and you have parking. Um, that becomes too big of a chunk to take out. And so one of the things that um, uh, Scott Walker did was... <laughs> deep breath, deep breath. <laughs> Almost Lamaze breathing on that one. <laughs> <laughs> in honor of Ari and his wife, right? Um, um, is that um, they threatened and they tried to shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in Milwaukee. Now Milwaukee houses 70% of Wisconsin's black population. So when you require government issued photo ID, meaning basically a driver's license, and then you, you try to shut down the DMVs. Now the hue and cry was so intense that he was like, okay, and he backed off of that. But you already saw it happening. Um, series of court cases taking them back and forth to court, and the judge is like, look, the way you've got this law is just wrong. And so you have to tell your citizens that they have the right to vote and that they can do so without the provisional ballots piece because the provisional ballots are basically used. That's when you don't have the ID and then you have to, you can vote but they won't count it until you come back within a certain limited period of time with the correct documentation. If not, they'll toss that ballot away. And so about 30% of provisional ballots aren't counted because of that because it's hard for people to get back and forth. And so in Wisconsin, um, there was a 60,000 um, person drop in voter turnout be between 2012 and 2016. 60,000 people, 68% of that decline happened in Milwaukee alone. And so when Donald Trump wins Wisconsin, by 27,000 votes, the kinds of, of voter suppression tactics being used, the misinformation, and I mean, the federal judge is just basically hollering at Scott Walker and his AG. And recently, just this week, the Attorney General for Wisconsin on a radio show said, do you think without voter ID that Ron Johnson or Donald Trump would have won Wisconsin? I mean, so they know what they're doing. I mean, this is very intentional. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good segue to what I wanted to ask you next, which is, I mean, Wisconsin, I suppose to some degree, is a potentially an extreme case because of who Walker is and the sort of conservative faction of the Republican Party that he represents. But I thought what was um, excellent in White Rage and the uh, uh, aftermath that you wrote in the new edition was when you uh, set your sights on um, Governor Kasich in Ohio. Um, now obviously, um, Ohio is another one of those swing states that Donald Trump won, but we tend to think of Kasich as an anti-Trumper, we tend to think of him as a sort of you know, moderate in the Republican Party, but Ohio also has one of the worst voter purge legislations in any state in the, across the United States, and so I'll just read back what you wrote about him and ask you to respond to it. Um, he said, all this voter suppression occurred while Ohio Governor John Kasich established himself as a fierce critic of Donald Trump. Yet the governor, while making symbolic gestures of defiance, for example, refusing to attend the RNC in his own state, 
did nothing to remove the barriers in his administration that his administration had put in place to make it doubly difficult for blacks to vote in, a state of, in the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. mm. To what extent should we be talking about this issue as a mainstream Republican issue just as much as an extremist Republican issue? Because it is, it really is. And I think Ohio is a wonderful state because Kasich, you know, has been touted as like the, the Trump antidote or the anti-Trump. But when you look at, and, and when you think about it, Ohio, we don't think of voter suppression in Ohio. So, but let me give you a couple of pieces about what has happened there to, to put this into context. So there is a, a Supreme Court case going on right now because the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, has purged, that is removed, two million voters off of the rolls, off of the voting rolls. 1.2 million of those he has removed simply because they haven't voted in a couple of federal elections. Now, the National Voter Registration Act is very clear. You cannot clean or clear or purge your voter rolls simply because people haven't voted. People have the right to not vote, but he's done so anyway. 25% of the purges are coming out of Cuyahoga County. That's Cleveland, Ohio. That is a democratic stronghold. And so when you remove 25% of the voters off of the rolls, and they don't really even know that they're not on the rolls until, say, they want to go vote, and they find out that they've been purged, and it's too late for them to do anything about it for that election. Um, one of the other things, early voting. Now, early voting, early voting was put into place to deal with the fact that we have elections on a Tuesday uh, when folks are working. <laughs> and so when you are working class and you have to punch the clock and you have to vote where you live and not where you work, it makes it really hard. I know, I don't, I know the traffic here in New York is bad. The traffic in Atlanta is awful, <laughs> awful. And, and, and if you work here, but. You, you live here, but you work there. Being able to get to work in time enough so your, your pay is not docked is so hard. It is so hard. So what early voting does is it opens up the days for voting so that you can come in on a Saturday. You can come in on a Sunday. You don't have to choose between um, making a living that day, earning your wages that day, or being able to select the person who is going to be making the policies that govern your life. What Ohio did, Ohio said, okay, we're going to treat everybody equally. So each county will get one early voting station. Now, that almost sounds good, except each county is not equal. Pickaway County, for instance, only has 60,000 people. Whereas Hamilton County, where Cincinnati is located has 800,000 people. And so if you've only got one site for early voting in Pickaway County and one site for early voting in Hamilton County, what you have then is a line, which they had in Cincinnati, that went stretched for over a quarter of a mile of people waiting in line to early vote because of the disparate handling of early voting stations. Now, when you begin to think about it, what counties have large populations? 
usually those are the counties that have large minority populations. And so if you only have one early voting station in these places, you are systematically undermining and cutting. Frankly, that's what North Carolina did as well. And, and so, and Kasich sat on top of all of this and was fine with it. When you, when you talk about what happened in Wisconsin, what happened in North Carolina and, and in Ohio, it, it's truly shocking. Um, and I think a lot of people around the country don't really know it's happening. Um, and I think a lot of reporters like me don't pay enough attention to it. Um, you know, we're obsessed with Russia. We write a lot about, uh, you know, P-tapes and Donald Trump's tweets and that sort of stuff. I wonder why you think this is not a bigger story and what you think people like me could do to make it a bigger story. I think it's not as big a story because it's not sexy. We love the sexy. <coughs> we <laughs> own it, right? <laughs> we love it. We, and, and, and you know, when you think about voting and there are all these laws and these rules, it, it doesn't have sexy written in it. But it is so important. If anything, this last election demonstrated like none other I mean, the, the, because of uh, voter suppression, the black voter turnout rate declined by 7% in this last election, 7%. Um, when you, you think about North Carolina's um, uh, Republicans celebrating that because they removed, you know, so in Guilford County that has over half a million people, they removed, they had 16 early voting machines in 2012, they reduced it to one and said, yes, celebrating that African American um, early voting had declined by over 8%. Again, because voting seems, and, and we are really good at making voting seem very routine. Mm. You, you, you register on election day, you go vote, and then you watch the returns, and then you go back to whatever you're doing. And so it just kind of has a, a, a almost like a McDonald's commercial I remember from years ago, get up, go to work, come home, go to bed, get up, go to work, right? And so it has that kind of routine feel to it, but it is anything but routine. Um, what the GOP did was to dig into the arcane rules of voting to begin to figure out how to create and craft its own electorate and how to shut down other voters that would um, be against its, its agenda. Um, how did they do that? So let me talk about Alabama quickly. Sure. So in Alabama, Alabama in 2011, so that's two years before Shelby County v. Holder, um, passed a, a voter ID law. Now the Republicans are actually recorded as saying, we've gotta figure out how to depress the black voter turnout because you know these illiterates and these aborigines will get on these HUD finance buses and go to the polls. So you know that law is not getting through a Department of Justice preclearance. But after Shelby County v. Holder, that law immediately was enacted. Now it, as it defined um, government issued photo ID, one of the things that it did 
is that um, Alabama has, is a very poor state. It's ranked like 47th or 48th in the nation in terms of poverty, which means it has a lot of public housing, a lot of people in public housing. In fact, 71% of those in public housing are African American in Alabama. The state decided that public housing ID would not count as government issued photo ID. Now, I don't know, but I don't think it gets more public than public housing. But by saying that you cannot use that ID, what it does is automatically you have begun to curtail the access of African Americans and the poor to the ballot box. Or let's take Texas. Texas says that student ID from a, a, a public university, like the University of Texas at Austin, will not count as government-issued photo ID, but your gun registration will. So what you can see what that does is because they think students are all liberal, and so if we can keep them from voting, whereas they believe that those who own guns are staunch Republicans, and so by crafting the kinds of IDs that are eligible and those that are ineligible, then they're able to craft what their electorate looks like. And so they're able to almost rig the election even before the election happens. What you're really talking about are, is, is anti-democracy, right? Bo bo borderline authoritarianism. And I wonder where you think Donald Trump fits into all of this. This is a man who, even before he began his political career, mm -hmm. um, had been sued by the Justice Department for uh, uh, unfair housing practice, um, had called for the death of five innocent uh, young minority teens here in New York um, in the Central Park Five jogger case, and, uh, sorry, in the, uh, in, the, yeah, mm -hmm. in the Central Park jogger case, mm -hmm. um, and had questioned uh, the validity of the first African-American president in this country. Mm. Does Donald Trump serve as a symbol for the sort of forces that you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and so it's really easy because Donald is so Donald that, that it's really easy to just kind of perseverate on him. But he is merely symptomatic of a larger rot. Um, he rode in, I mean, when you begin to think about it, there were 16 Republican candidates who, many of whom had policy experience, they had governmental experience, and they didn't make it because there was something happening in that body politic. And what that was was the Southern strategy. So we're gonna go back and do some history because I'm a historian. <laughs> so uh, after the Civil War, uh, I promise not to go back to the primordial lose, <laughs> um, but after the Civil War, um, as the, uh, the Republicans were the party of Lincoln. In the South, the South hated the party of Lincoln. They were the Democrats. And those Southern Democrats did everything that they could to, to disfranchise African Americans and everything else. By the time we get to 1965, you see how fast I went up there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good. It's good. I, skipped some, I skipped some good stuff, too. <laughs> um, the, um, is, is that LBJ, who was a Texan, when he was signing the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 65, he said, I think we have lost the South for at least a generation. 
the Republicans looked at that solid Democratic South and began to woo it in there um, with these dog whistles about law and order, um, about sending the signals that they really weren't all for this civil rights thing that was happening, and beginning to craft a narrative of white innocence, Southern innocence, and that you've got this big Leviathan federal government that is usurping your rights and this crashing down on you. And that narrative of racism and the government forcing all of these unqualified black people into your space became part of, you know, when you think of the late language of forced busing, right? And so they wooed them in, and you begin, and that was Nixon. And so you begin to see that turn. With Reagan, it became full blown. But as they wooed that toxin, and I do believe racism is a toxin, as they wooed that toxin into the party, it began to take over the party. And you began to lose moderate Republicans because when you're running in the primaries, the closer you got, the, the more you had to run to the hard right in order to win the primaries to be able to come up into the general elections. And so by the time we get to Donald Trump, so Southern Strategy 68, this thing is really virulent by the time we get to 2016. This is part of how you explain a Donald Trump. I'm gonna ask you two, I, I'm just gonna check very quickly how much time we have left. 15 minutes, okay, so we wanna do some questions as well. So I'm gonna ask you two more questions okay. and then uh, if anybody has a question, I think you have to go and stand over there, is that right? Yeah, okay. I think th uh, the reason Penn asked me to do this talk was because I did a profile of uh, William Barber, who, for those of you who don't know, is this absolutely extraordinary uh, uh, priest from North Carolina who has led the Moral Monday movement um, in North Carolina. And I went and spoke to him at a moment that he's trying to take Moral Mondays on a national stage. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's trying to reinvent the Poor People's Campaign mm -hmm and he is uh, infusing activism uh, around voting rights mm -hmm. with activism around immigration, um, around poverty, around lots of other uh, very, very important issues that one would hope would be what the Democrats campaign on in 2018. Do you, when you look at Mr. Barber and uh, the wonderful work that he's doing, does it give you hope? Uh, what do you think is gonna happen in 2018? Do you think he's gonna have an impact on it? I, I may not be the one to ask because I love Reverend Barber. <laughs> um, he is infusing a moral clarity in the work. And with that moral clarity, he's also infusing policy. And he's also ensuring that, um, because one of the ways that movements break down, um, that progressive movements break down, is by pitting people against each other. You can either have women's rights or you can have African-Americans' rights. You can either have African-Americans' rights or you can have immigrants' rights. You know, that pitting people against each other in terms of thinking through it as a zero-sum game has been tried and true. Reverend Barber, I mean, the work that they were doing in Moral Mondays in North Carolina, for instance, um, is that they were monitoring very closely what the legislation was, like the, the bathroom ban, right? And so here you have a Southern Baptist minister who is advocating and rallying around the rights of LBGTQ folk because it's understanding that the the assault on rights on one is the assault on rights on all. And that kind of intersectional 
um, uh, movement is part of the incredible strength of Moral Mondays. Um, let me just add quickly, and I say Go quickly. Um, let's take, I'm gonna take Alabama, because that, because here is where you also see movement. Um, that, that special election in 2017 between Roy Moore and Doug Jones, you had, Alabama had used every voter suppression method known to man on those black belt counties. I mean, had ground those counties down and civil society got in there. It was the NAACP, the Legal Defense Fund, um, League of Women Voters, the ACLU, local indigenous groups, I mean, they're all local, but Black PAC and Woke Vote and Righteous Vote, and each took a section of what needed to be done in order to overcome all of the voter suppression mechanisms that that state had put in place. It, that it was so effective, so effective, that the overall voter turnout rate in Alabama was 40%. But in the black belt counties, it was 45%. And when you think about it, Roy Moore lost by just over 20,000 votes. I mean, that is what that kind of mobilization does in, 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 in inspiring the kind of hope for change and the grassroots work for change that we saw in the civil rights movement. Okay, my last question before we take some questions from you guys. Um, when I first came to America, um, I've been here for three, three and a half years now, uh, my first assignment, mm -hmm. which I'd worked on for about a year and a half, was basically covering police violence. Um, I worked on a project called The Counted, which The Guardian uh, ran for a whole year, which was trying to document every single um, mm -hmm. officer-involved death that happened, happened in this country. Mm -hmm. And in preparing for this talk, I realized uh, that I had visited the two counties in Wisconsin where the sharpest number of African-American votes dropped off. Mm -hmm. So I visited once in 2015 to Dane County, which is where Madison is, to cover the death of Tony Robinson, who was an unarmed 19-year-old uh, who was killed, killed by Madison police. Um, and then I visited uh, Milwaukee County, which is where Syville Smith was killed uh, by Milwaukee cops, again, an unarmed African-American. And it got me thinking, I had never thought about voter suppression as an issue that was interlinked with what I was covering at that point. And I wonder if you might be able to tell me, because I, it's still very fuzzy in my head, how they are interlinked and if they are. Absolutely, so begin to think about it this way. Um, the, in Milwaukee, for instance, you've got extreme poverty. Um, you have... Um, aging, decrepit housing. You've got people spending somewhere between 50 to 70% of their income on aging, decrepit housing. What happens if you actually have city council members and mayors um, who are devising policies to end that, to figure out how do we create a strong safety net that are about trying to, to strengthen this, the public schools, um, but, and who are also uh, nominating and appointing police commissioners. But if you suppress that black vote, then all of the policy changes that could ameliorate those conditions, that could have a chance of ameliorating those conditions, just goes away. 
And I mean, so that's part of, you know, so as I, I look through what you, your articles were beautiful, by the way. Thanks, very kind. <laughs> it means a lot coming from you, it really does. <laughs> um, but as you're, as you're outlining each of the kinds of key elements that are happening in those communities, with poverty, with schooling, with employment, with lack of available living wage jobs, with um, housing crisis, with the lack of public services, with the re uh, retraction of public funding, all of those are policy issues that then can, can be focused on in the ballot box. When you have uh, candidates running that are addressing those issues, when you shut down that black vote the way they have, you get the same old, same old. Okay. Um, I think we've got a bit of time for questions still, do we? Has anybody got any questions? I also can't really see because... Yeah. There we are, okay. And that was Chris Kobach out of Kansas, one of the most virulent vote suppressors out there. And um, so to me, part of what needs to happen is, I, I really do believe that after 2008, we really got complacent. We, you know, we just thought that this democracy thing would just run on its own. Um, and 2016 was a wake-up call. It is knowing um, what your, the Secretary of State in your state is so important in terms of the ways that the right to vote is handled. Knowing who your Secretary of State is and then following up, following through, calling, um, demanding a level of accountability that they're not used to. Um, when they are held to task, they usually, except for Chris Kobach, because he's just gone, uh, he really, I mean, when you're looking at a federal judge and the federal judge has told you for the third time and you still refuse, um, so uh, it really is holding them accountable. Um, and it's your calls, it's your letters, it's your, your letters to the editor, it's your calls to the governor. Um, it is the calls to the media saying something's not right here. In, in Georgia, our, our Secretary of State um, just wiped out 600,000 people in one fell swoop off of the rolls. Although Georgia's um, population has increased, the number of registered voters has decreased under Brian Kemp. He's now running for governor. People are organizing and mobilizing. Yeah. Can we take one more?
And I have two questions. I've only going to ask one, but the one I'm going to ask is probably not going to win me many friends in the room, but mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's in the spirit of making lemon out of lemonade. No, lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> is Do you think there's any chance that maybe now things have gotten so bad that the extinguisher is going to actually help to shift all of this is, believe it or not, to capitalism? You know, that that's like one of the last... I, I, I can't believe I'm saying this is like as a, as a hope, but what I'm trying to say is that as the barriers break down, like the kind of the transparency of people's plight, like the gateways and the gatekeepers are sort of breaking down through social media, not that I'm a fan of social media, but it is allowing some other voices to get heard. But as more and more, it's getting more and more transparent of the absolute disparity between the have and the have nots in this country in all sorts of areas, um, that, some, that as that sort of gets to be more of a, more of a topical issue that corporations then have to listen to, but if corporations start treating things differently and then the money stops going, you know, I guess I'm trying to figure out a way in which, and I'm just wondering if you think that I'm completely nuts <laughs> in thinking that maybe, believe it or not, like in the final twist and turn, that capitalism will actually be the thing da -da -da -da. That, that forces politics to do it differently. <laughs> Unfortunately, one of the things that capitalism has done is dark money. Um, the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United um, basically said that corporations were having their First Amendment rights to free speech hampered by laws that were limiting the amount of donations that they could make to uh, political candidates. One of the things that has happened after Citizens United is that you have had a flood of money, I mean a flood of money from billionaires pouring into these candidates and it's virtually impossible to trace it. There's a wonderful book by Jane Mayer, uh, Dark Money, that really begins to lay this out. Um, and so what dark money has, has done, for instance, um, the tax bill, that tax law that was just passed, Lindsey Graham, you know, you, you've got something like 80% of Americans hated this bill. You know, they, they've, they figured out that there was, n you, you were getting ready to get a $1.4, $1.5 trillion deficit, but you were going to get no investment in education, no investment in healthcare, no investment in infrastructure. It was just going to be a, a wealth transfer to the top 0.5%. Um, Lindsey Graham said, we have to pass this bill or our donors will not fund our next campaign. So that is what capitalism has done. In order, to meet, in order for us to begin to revive democracy, one, it has been what we have seen, this massive mobilization of regular people who have had enough um, and who are in the town halls and who are voting who are knocking on doors, registering people to vote, um, ferrying people back and forth to the polls who don't have, who don't have transportation. Um, but what we're going to need is we're going to need another Voting Rights Act. We're going to need to have it restored. Absolutely. And we're going to have to have Citizens United overturned. Those are two of the major elements that are going to have to happen. And finally, we're going to need the Supreme Court to do what it must do 
and that is defined in the Gill v. Whitford case, which is the extreme partisan gerrymandering case um, out of Wisconsin. We're going to have to have them find on the side that extreme gerrymandering is unconstitutional. If we can get those three things, we have a chance, but that also requires our consistent, ongoing engagement. Yeah. And on that note, I think we will end. Just to say before we finish, uh, Carol's book is on sale over there, and I think you're going to sign a few copies if anybody Absolutely. comes along. Um, thank you so much, Carol. It was an absolute privilege talking to you. Oh, thank you, Oliver. Thank you so much. <laughs>